Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we're doing this time round is Casablanca. Which means, yes, of course, we're going to be talking about World War II, but what might surprise you is the main theme is going to be about refugees and how they're portrayed in history. Because while, yes, I will be touching on modern refugees and political conversations around them, it's interesting how much of history has actually been shaped by the mass movement of peoples, sometimes in a way that you might not have even realised. With that in mind, there's a whole lot of things to talk about here. And also, another thing we're going to be talking about is kind of myth-making as well. There's an awful lot to come out of one movie, but trust me, it's all in there, either deliberately or accidentally. If you don't know what Casablanca is, and what's, what's really interesting is, IMDb, if you don't know what that is, the Internet Movie Database, it's a website that's been going on for years. I think it's been bought by Amazon. But the point of it is, is it's like an encyclopedia of movies. You type in the name of a movie, like, for example, Casablanca, and it will then show you every single actor and actress that's in it and who they play, if you're not aware of this. And it'll give you other details as well. It'll tell you things like the year it came out, etc. So, for example, Humphrey Bogart's there. So if you click on Humphrey Bogart, you'll then go to his page rather than the Casablanca page, and then it'll start telling you about all the other good films that he's been in. Well, actually, all the films he's been in, good and bad. The point is this. On every single movie, that you get two ratings. Well, technically, you get three. You get the aggregates of what general users of IMDb have scored it. Then you get the critic score, and the other sort of one is if you yourself want to give it a score, but let's forget about that one. And so what IMDb has done is aggregated all of these scores and put them into, in terms of users rather than critics, the top 250 IMDb movies of all time. The top 10 is a mixed bag. I mean, some of them you could probably guess. There's The Godfather and Godfather Part 2 in it. Number one is Shawshank Redemption. We've got 12 Angry Men. So, you know, we've got older films there that generally are widely regarded. But there's some outliers there as well, like The Dark Knight in the top 10 movies of all time. So that's 
I mean, I love The Dark Knight, whether it's in the top 10 of all time, and it does mean that there are some other utterly beloved classics that aren't even in the top 10. For example, Casablanca. Ooh, that's why he said it. But also something like Citizen Kane as well. So it's a really good list. I mean, it's not like you suddenly got, I don't know, Super Mario Brothers up there in the top 10. That's not going to happen. Oh, no! But it's, it's slightly skewed. It does tend to go a bit younger. And you get a movie like Casablanca, which up until the age of the internet was regularly considered one of the greatest movies of all time for like 50 years, but has slowly slid down the charts as people have been exploring other movies and the internet democratized this stuff. And it's not just what well-regarded film critics in America think of movies. And Casablanca is one of the ones that's kind of taken a hit. And indeed, when it comes to my kids with me as their dad, they kind of don't have a choice on this. They've seen older, really good movies. You know, they've seen The Godfather. They've seen something like The Seven Samurai, for example. Twelve Angry Men they've seen as well. They've both seen The Shawshank Redemption too. So, you know, these films came out many years before they were even born. Some of them were even in black and white, etc. Seven Samurai's over three hours long and it's got subtitles and it's in black and white. But hey, it's got samurai in it, so that'll keep uh, kids happy. But the point is, even amongst the more film-literate friends of theirs, Casablanca just isn't in the conversation anymore. But it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. And when people are talking about the absolute stone-cold black-and-white classics, it tends to be more things like Psycho or indeed Citizen Kane. It's sort of fallen out of favour, but then every time you go back to it, you... You go, oh my goodness, this is genuinely one of the best screenplays I've ever seen. It's one of these films that it was so impressive in its time that it has led to so many quotes coming from it that it's almost like a comedy or a parody as you just keep sitting there. And there's a part of your brain, well, obviously I've seen it a number of times, but I am aware that there's a part of your brain that sort of goes, oh, well, that's where it's coming from. And it's almost like when somebody's saying something so famous as it comes out of their mouth, it actually diminishes it because it, you, you realise it's a script. It's not like a moment between two characters, which, of course, every film is, is like that. But that's what's going on there with Casablanca. I'm five minutes in. And I haven't even really told you much about the movie. So the interesting thing is this started as a play and it was written by Murray Bennett. It was called Everyone Comes to Rick's and it was written in 1940. It never came out as a play. It started turning into a bit of a bidding war. But also, America was very uneasy about this kind of stuff before America joined World War II. Perhaps the best example of this is a contemporary film, basically, to Casablanca, Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator. The hate of men will pass, and dictators die. And the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Basically, when he made that in 1940, people basically freaked out in America. It's like this was so blatantly anti-German at a time when America was still neutral, but there was war in Germany. It was it was too dangerous. And so it did come out. I mean, this is the thing. People say it was buried. It, was, it wasn't, but it, it didn't have a huge hoo-ha release. And then once America was involved in World War II, 
they then re-released it or up the amount of theatres it was in and it suddenly became a huge hit. And so, ironically, a man who is best known for his silent work, his last great masterpiece is all about dialogue. And it's great, but it's got lots of sight gags in it as well, if you like silent comedy-type gags as well. And it's just one of these things where it is aged like a fine wine, and it's the same thing with Casablanca. Basically, a story about all these people who have fled Western Europe, who are now set up in Casablanca. Where is that? That's actually in Morocco, in West Africa. And all these people are sort of sitting around largely in just a few different locations. If it had a different tone to it, the setup of it is almost exactly the same as a sitcom, in the sense that you have two or three main sets. You don't see lots of people wandering around in the countryside. Let's keep it all in studios. It keeps the cost down. And that's exactly what's happening here. Indeed, what I love about this is Casablanca, partly because there was a war on, partly because Hollywood is cheap, partly because there's a lot of resources that you actually have. The only set that was specifically made for Casablanca was Rick's Cafe. Everything else were reused sets from other movies. But hey, it doesn't matter. You know, a wall's a wall and with some fancy sort of vaguely Arabic looking chandeliers hanging off on top of it. There's no harm in, in doing that. There is all these sort of like great reuses in the 1930s and 40s. I mean, it's even used today. There are certain special effects shots that were from one Transformers movie that were used in another Transformers movie. I mean, if you can find useful little shortcuts, why wouldn't you do that? My favourite one, though, is in the burning of Atlanta of Gone with the Wind. There wasn't CGI then, so how are we going to show this city on fire? We're just going to burn a load of sets. All the old sets, and in including, and I love this, the gate set from King Kong. So you've got two of the most important early movies there, Gone with the Wind and King Kong, actually in the same movie, in colour. King Kong wasn't even in colour. So that's what's going on there. Casablanca's doing the same kind of thing. Nothing's set on fire, but a wall's a wall, basically. Why not reuse it? So the point about this is Casablanca is a bit of a dichotomy because going back to Murray Bennett's play, Everyone Comes to Rick's, that play was bought for a then Warner Brothers record of $20,000. Now, obviously, if we're talking, if we're going to sort of like ramp it up to, to modern day, if you wanted to say that's the equivalent of like $2 million, that's probably about right. So you can say it was a huge amount of money to be spent on a play, which hadn't even been put on. It wasn't like it was a big hit that everybody wanted to see. So on the one hand, a lot of money was spent on Casablanca. On the other hand, all of it, or virtually all of it, was filmed in studios in California. Not that they would go to Morocco, that was the middle of a war, it was kind of dangerous, but there is nothing exotic going on in this movie whatsoever. It's as American as apple pie, and yet they do a very good job of making you feel like it's not necessarily in California, so the budget was low. Indeed, the general expectation, and this is the thing, and this is what I mean about myth-making, in hindsight, because it got good reviews, it won Oscars, and it's just a really tight script, well acted, that it has been well preserved and well regarded. There are loads of films from 1942 that you have never heard of, and there's a good reason for them, because they're not very good. 
But this is an example where they just happen to catch lightning in a bottle. And so even to a modern viewer, yeah, it's in black and white, but it's like, this is a really good, well-acted, very well-scripted movie that's got something to say. And so afterwards, we think that surely this was the shining jewel in Warner Brothers' crown for 1942. It's like, no, it was just one of many productions that were going on. Bogart wasn't necessarily the biggest star in the world in 1942. They did enough to make it work, and it turned out they were repaid handsomely because none of it looks cheap, cheap, but some of it just gets so weird. Like, again, because most of it was filmed in studios, you get things like the final scene. I'm not going to tell you exactly what's happening with the characters in the final scene, but basically you have two of the key characters in the foreground, and they're basically at an airport and the plane is going to be taking off shortly. And it's like, okay, fair enough, that's, it's a great shot. But once you know this, it's like, okay, that's clever. But what this is, is actually forced perspective. They're not on an airfield, they're in a studio. A studio can't be big enough to put a runway on it and a full-size plane. So what do they do? Basically because of the forced perspective, and the characters are standing in the foreground, everything else looks fine. It basically is a model aircraft that's much smaller than the real aircraft, but you have people working on it. And it's like, well, how is that possible? Because if that's a significantly smaller plane, if you have people next to it, you're going to realize it's a model. And the answer is they used little people. So it's a genius bit of cost saving that doesn't ruin the illusion of the movie. And let's face it, everything in a movie is basically an illusion. And it's a great way to save money. And that's chef's kiss. Oh, you know, that's just an amazing bit of filmmaking. Well done, you guys. So there's a lot of shenanigans going on with keeping budgets down in the background. But it fundamentally, it doesn't affect the thing that they really spent their money on, the play, the actual writing. Now, to be clear, everyone comes to Rick's. There were lots of changes from the original play. But then, as I said, there was not a huge appetite for war movies before America got involved in the war. But this is an example of a movie being made at that time. And during World War II, this is, to call it propaganda is not giving it its full credit. Of course, it's going to be showing things from a certain perspective, but it's actually more subtle than normal propaganda. Let me put it that way. And so, for example, this film was actually made, I keep saying it comes out in 42. It was filmed in 42. It was meant to come out in 43. But Warner Brothers, if you go back... I don't know how long, but I think it was maybe early May this year, 2023, when basically Warner Brothers was celebrating 100 years. So I do briefly mention Casablanca in that. And I talk about the whole evolution of the Warner Brothers studios. It's a, one of my favorite episodes. I would really recommend you go back and listen to that if you want to. But as I say in that one, during the war, Warner Brothers was one of the most patriotic studios. So, for example, by 1943... Studios just realized that, that everyone was fed up of going to see war movies, and so other studios like Universal, for example, Paramount, they stopped making war films and did other things instead. Fair enough, they're a studio, they're trying to make money. But Warner Brothers felt it was their patriotic duty, even if we're going to lose money on these movies, to keep showing them. Now, that wasn't the reason for Casablanca, but it is another example of this is happening at a time when real-world events are taking place, and sometimes they can overtake movies. And so what happened is at the end of 1942, American forces landed in West Africa. 
So if they didn't get Casablanca out quickly, there wasn't going to be any reason why these people were sitting there with Nazis in Casablanca because clearly it was going to fall to Allied forces. So world events were changing the release date of a movie and then it got a second shot in the arm. Don't forget, this is before video and streaming and things like that. So in other words, you can re-release or you can let it calm down and then open it up again into more theatres later on. And that's exactly what happened when there was the Casablanca conference, when you had the Allied leaders all meeting in Casablanca. And literally the word Casablanca was being spread everywhere in the news. So let's remind everybody we got a movie about it. And as I also said about the Warner Brothers episode, Warner Brothers was quite canny with their budgeting and spending. They were not the biggest studio, and therefore they had to hustle hard, if you like, to make their money. So all of this is around the kind of making of it. There are other slightly silly things. Humphrey Bogart plays Rick Blaine. He's the central character. He's this deeply cynical American who can't go back to America. I love the fact that we never know why he can't go back to America, and that's because the screenwriters basically couldn't come up with a credible reason that would still make him likable, so let's just always leave it loose. So he's kind of trapped. He he was in France, but then France got invaded by the Germans. He can't go back home, so he's now stuck, and he's deeply cynical, world-weary. So that's Humphrey Bogart, and he's clearly had this previous relationship with Ingrid Bergman, just absolutely luminous in this movie, playing Ilse Lund, and what's fun about this is there's, you know, there's a lot of chemistry between those two, but in reality... Bogart is five foot eight. Bergman is a statuesque five foot ten. So what happened? There were times when literally they just had Bogart standing on a box or having Bergman sitting down. So in other words, you can't have in the 1940s the lead guy having the woman towering over them. So it's silly little 1940 things like that, which are behind the scenes in no way impacts the actual movie. But it's just sort of fun things like that were going on set, but also very dark, very serious things were also going on on set too. I'm not going to go to the to dark stuff yet, but what I will say is Casablanca is so famous, it's being used sometimes as an example of how hard it is to get a screenplay to be done. Various people have changed the names in it and changed the location, etc., certainly not using the Casablanca, and resubmitted it to various studios. This has been done multiple times to basically show that something that made a lot of money and won Oscars you get some people turning around still saying, oh, no, that'll never work in Hollywood. And it's like, well, this is how dumb agents are or how dumb studios are. But to be fair now to the studios and agents, and let's face it, I've had lots of rejection with them with my books in my time, not movies, but literary. But this is the thing. Things do change. People wouldn't make Casablanca in the 2020s because that's not how people consume shows anymore or movies anymore it, it just wouldn't make any money so i would understand why people would reject it but it is funny when sometimes people just flat out reject it and say it's bad when we all know it won an oscar so it has to be good but you sometimes get agents spotting it and going this is a really great reinterpretation of casablanca so it's like haha got you other people might say this is very good but it's very old-fashioned which would be valid so casablanca weirdly has a relationship with the industry as a whole it's an amazing, this is absolutely true, in 1983, so 41 years after the movie came out, American TV thought, do you know what people really want? They want a prequel to Casablanca. Let's find out 
about how Ilsa and Rick met in Paris. We'll always have Paris. What's going on with Rick and why is he in Casablanca and all this kind of stuff. So there was a prequel series that came out starring David Soul. You know, like Starsky and Hutch? Yeah, that David Soul. So he was playing Rick. You know, notoriously blonde guy playing a guy with dark hair there. And also, David Soul's really tall and skinny. And Bogart, as I sort of pointed out, is short and stocky. Yeah, natural. Yeah, obviously seamlessly blurring into each other's characters there. There's a reason why Casablanca is remembered fondly and you've never heard of the prequel. I mean, it did apparently find figures on TV because there's nothing else to watch then. But, but yeah, it was being forgotten. And then there is the weirdest remake ever. Into the 1990s, we have Pamela Anderson, a model that... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. ...promoted beer, blonde hair, how could I put this politely, artificially enhanced. That's all I'm going to say there. She just became a sensation when she was in the TV show Baywatch. And just things got bigger and bigger for her. Things kind of got crazy and sort of like terrible things happened around her. I'm not going to go into it. There's a very touching drama about these years called Pam and Tommy, which is on Disney+. Plus. It is extremely well done. I really do recommend you, you give that a view, but it is very adult for the record. But she'd made a number of very bad films which were perhaps playing on her assets Jem said again and actually so does this one but she was actually given an opportunity to front a properly budgeted movie called Barb Wire which is actually based on a comic book and she does kind of have 1980s comic 
female proportions of certainly in the 1990s. This film is based on Casablanca. Basically, barbed wire runs a bar, she's world-weary, etc. So you have Pamela... I might have critiqued David's soul, but Pamela Anderson, particularly in the 1990s, is the absolute polar opposite of who Rick Blaine was, played by Humphrey Bogart back in the 1940s. I again promise you, this is not a fever dream. This is all real. And so we come to the more important stuff, the less silly stuff, if you like. As I'm going to say, as I transition, as always, please click subscribe. If you give us a review, that would be lovely on whatever podcast app you're listening to. And tell somebody about us. That would be lovely. An actual human being in your office or in your family life or whatever. Maybe you and your loved one can snuggle up in bed together and listen to me before you go to sleep. If anybody actually does that, I'm going to say that's weird. But thank you. Thank you so much for bringing me into your private boudoir. I'm going to move on very quickly before I get into trouble. Right. Okay. So the point about this and why I really wanted to do this episode is, yeah, okay, fine. We, we've talked about elements of, of movie making here and even sort of like myth making about how everybody apparently knew this was going to be a big hit. But clearly you could see budget wise, that was not a given in any way. But what we've got is a lot of people from Europe in this movie. As I said, it might have all been filmed in California, but Hollywood's always attracted people from other countries, immigrants. But on this occasion, they weren't just immigrants. Many of them were flat-out refugees. And so you've got perhaps one of the most famous scenes in the movie where you have the Germans sitting there and they all start singing the German national anthem. And then the other locals start singing La Marseillaise, the French national anthem, and basically drown them out. The power of this moment, you can see tears in people's eyes. Now, they could just be acting very well, but what you need to understand is there are people standing there whose actual countries are now currently under military occupation by the Third Reich. It wasn't hard to create that level of emotion in that room. And indeed, the vast majority of the Germans are indeed real Germans from Germany, but they're German Jews or they're Jewish sympathizers or left-wingers. In other words, all of these people were extreme danger had they stayed in Germany. They all hated the Nazis and therefore there was a level of uncomfortableness of wearing the uniform of the enemy. To a certain extent, you get someone like Konrad Witt, who plays Major Strasser in it. He is an utterly disgusting German officer in this movie. And that was deliberate by Conrad. He was a friend of many Jewish people in Germany. He knew what was happening. I mean, maybe he didn't know the full extent of the Holocaust, but he certainly knew about the persecution. He had a complete hatred of the Nazis, which is why he ended up feeling he had to leave the country because the SS wanted him. That is a very brave man. And so he wanted to play Major Strasser with absolutely no redeemable qualities whatsoever. This is his bit of propaganda. He's basically saying, this is why we're fighting. And so 10 out of 10 to Conrad and that. And if you find him a boo-hissable villain, well, there's a reason for that. He's going for it. And he's an example of how we shouldn't say that all Germans were Nazis or the Germans were evil. That's, that's kind of a racist statement, but there's no doubt that the regime ruling them absolutely was. And so you've got 
this real tension there. Ingrid Berman is obviously Swedish. Sweden was never invaded, but she was raised speaking Swedish and German. This is really impressive that you then got this woman. She's already bilingual, neither in English, and there she is being in an American motion picture speaking impeccable English because this just the more you read about her, the more amazingly impressive the woman is. She's more impressive than Ilse Lund in the actual movie. While Sweden wasn't under occupation, on the right-hand side, you got Finland, which is at the time of the making of the movie. They are an ally of the Axis powers. They're fighting on the Eastern Front against the Soviet Union. And then to the west of Sweden, you got Norway, which was literally captured by the Nazis. And the British had even tried to recapture it and failed. Denmark below them, and obviously Germany directly below them. Denmark was captured in one day by the Third Reich. Basically, Denmark didn't have much of an army and they decided rather than just unnecessarily killing people, we can't stop the German army, let's just let them in. Although there is a wonderful moment that Denmark, realizing that they were going to bring in their racial laws, the Germans going to bring in the racial laws into Denmark and that the very small Jewish community of Denmark was basically in, in mortal danger by the, the Wehrmacht and the Nazis. So they managed to ship out almost all of the Danish Jewish community to Sweden, which welcomed them with open arms. It's a, a wonderful good news story, if you like, about German refugees, or so I should say uh, Jewish refugees, in World War II. Right, let's put that to one side. So you've got basically real refugees in America, in a movie, sort of feeling what's going on. I mean, more so than anybody sitting there in California. This is the thing about America. Yeah, Pearl Harbor was attacked, but Hawaii wasn't even a state in the 1940s. Hawaii and Alaska become the 49th and 50th states after World War II. It's worth pointing out that the flags that you see being waved by, they look like the modern American flags, but there's two less stars, and therefore the rectangle of stars is very slightly different. But anyway, so the point is, mainland America wasn't really ever under threat. It hadn't been bombed like Britain was over and over again, but it wasn't even invaded like something like France, for example, or the Netherlands. And so it felt a bit safer in America. You had the Atlantic between America and the Nazis, and you had the Pacific between America and the Japanese Empire. They were kind of insulated from the war, but there are some people there on the making of this movie that were raw. And obviously any of the uh, Jewish sort of like writers and workers in Hollywood that worked on Casablanca were absolutely aware of what the dangers were for Jews in Europe at that time. So all of this is swirling round and it leads to the conversation about when times are tough, people flee. And refugees are an example of something which doesn't get talked about in history nearly as much as it should be. Let's go back to the Roman era, shall we? Because I will actually be talking about refugees in the Roman era. Because if you are a writer in, let's say, 300 AD, what am I going to write about? I'm going to write about the big stuff. I'm going to write about things like the the rise of Constantine and the fact that he Christianizes the Roman Empire, for example. I'm going to write about battles, emperors. I'm not going to write about the little things. And the problem is that when it comes to refugees, these are 
poor people who come from somewhere else and probably don't even speak your language. From the perspective of a chronicler from, let's say, 1,700 years ago, they're an irrelevance. It's like nobody wants to hear about these people, therefore I'm not going to write about these people. So we can deduce in certain situations over time that clearly refugees were a thing, but we know almost nothing about them. But here's the thing. Inadvertently, the Romans were writing about refugees, but just not in the way they thought they would be. And, and this is the thing I find really interesting. If you want to look at the late Roman Empire in the West, less so in the East, it's a story of these wave and waves of, of settlers. We've got things like the Franks, we've got things like the Goths and the Huns and things like that. Now, in the case of the Huns, they were outright trying to build an empire and push into Roman lands. But these other groups, the Ostrogoths and things like that, the Alans, etc. There's, <laughs> there's, yeah, I'm not making this up, by the way. These are all various Germanic tribes. But the weird thing is, these people were coming in before things like the Huns. And they, from the perspective of the Romans, these were dangerous, they were barbarians, they were fighting, and sometimes they were settling, and sometimes they were given land in return for military service. So actually we see the fledgling versions of feudal system in the Roman era, but I'm not going to overdo that. But why were these people coming in? Why weren't they coming in at the time of, let's say, Caesar Augustus? Why are they coming in in the 300s and 400s and, and not earlier? And the answer is because they're refugees. If you got something like the Hunnic Empire pushing out of Central Asia, they're pushing against various groups that are terrified of them and, and are being attacked. I mean, does this sound familiar to like World War II? So what do they do? They get out of the way. They move west because the danger is east. So the irony is that you've got at the time of the Roman Empire, particularly if you say something like Julius Caesar, he wrote a book called The Gallic Wars. Gaul is the Roman name for France because it was full of these Celtic people called Gauls. Where are the Gauls today? It's not called Gaulia or Gaul or Gaul, I guess if it was French. No, we call it France. And that's because the Franks took over Gaul. The Franks aren't from France. They came in from the east. They came from the areas that nowadays we would call Germany and Poland. <laughs> so really, France has named itself after Germany. But then we've got the Germanic tribes. Where were they from? Particularly things like the Alans. This is one of the reasons why the French call the Germans Alemannia and the Germans call themselves the Deutsch because you get the Deutsch people, which is where we also get the word Dutch from. And so Germany is such a recent country. Don't forget, it was created in the 1870s that therefore it's almost like everyone in Europe agrees that we should call France France. We don't confuse it with Gaul anymore. But what I find fascinating is that it's a variation of France, whether you're in Romania or Norway or Ireland, okay? It's the same basic word. But then you get Germany, which is the largest European economic powerhouse there is. And yet 
I'm calling it Germany. That's it in English. The French call it Alemania. They call it Deutschland. It's not even close. They're clearly three completely different root words to get the same country. Why are the Franks moving from Germany? Because in Eastern Central Asia, let's say modern day Russia now and Belarus and Ukraine kind of thing, there were other groups like the Alans, etc. and the Germanic tribes and they were being pushed out by the Huns. So basically, as the Huns and other Hunnic groups were moving west, they were pushing other peoples away. And why were the Franks so aggressive towards the Roman Empire? Why were these Germanic tribes so aggressive towards the Roman Empire? Because they knew that there was something worse out to the east. And to the west, by then, the Roman Empire was past its prime. It wasn't able to have the fast-moving cavalry that the Huns had. And so, out of sheer necessity and tragedy, you get the collapse of the, the Roman Empire. You get other groups like the Lombards, and they end up settling in northern Italy. So the, you know, that's where you get Lombardy from. So these various different names have become fossilized in European counties and areas, and actually they are of ancient refugee tribes. We've got various examples during things like the Crusades of when things collapsed in the Middle East, the various Christians headed out. And actually a lot of them moved from actual mainland Middle East to Cyprus, which was still a Christian stronghold at that point. So there are references and echoes of refugees in various different moments of history but they're just not given the focus that they should do. And obviously, if we then fast forward to today, another fact that I always remember, at the end of World War II, 70 million people are in Germany. 40 million of them are displaced individuals. In other words, they are refugees. They might be from other countries or they might be from Germany, but they're in completely the wrong place. And so these people have to make their way back you know, what's left of my original home? You know, has it been bombed to pieces by artillery, etc.? And sadly, we're seeing that today. And whereas when it came to the Syrian civil war and literally millions of Syrians headed out of Syria because it was dangerous, you could die. There were examples of people using phosphorus and also nerve agents against civilian populations. These are war crimes. If I was there, I would also get out of there as fast as possible. But there was a huge resistance in Europe of how many of these people we're going to allow in. They represent a very different culture. They're not planning to stay and assimilate. You know, they're just going to create Little Damascus in the middle of Berlin or something like that. So there were lots of groups who were trying to attack these people, even though they just were families who just didn't want to be in a war zone. So I think that any kind of refugee that comes to a country that asks for assistance, we should absolutely reach out to. I think there are other issues about immigration, things like economic immigration. If you're just moving to a country because you want to make a better life for yourself, well, you're not guaranteed. You're, you do not have a right to go to any country you want to to set up a shop. That's a different conversation. And so you do get some right-wing media outlets that deliberately confuse things like immigration, asylum-seeking, illegal immigration and refugees. Those are four very different legal statuses, but just lumping them all together and saying, oh, they're the bad guys. No, that's that's absolutely not acceptable. But we do get another bit of positive news about refugees when it came to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, when literally at least four million refugees left Ukraine. And it was wonderful to see how Europe threw open its doors to basically help these people. Now, it wasn't perfect and it does vary the level of resource and help. 
from country to country. But I love the fact that there's friends of the family and they've got a Ukrainian child and mother and second child, although they're at university now. They're helping this sort of like family, which is just lovely to see. There is, I think, a sense of pride in Western Europe that we've been able to help Ukraine when clearly they are the aggrieved rather than the aggressors in that situation. And there was, go full circle back to Casablanca, there was this moment, if you like, of all these refugees arriving in Berlin. And we'd seen trains of people leaving Germany before, and either it was to some very dark places or it was to escape the horrors. And this time round, people were coming into Germany and Germans were opening, flinging their doors wide open, which was just a lovely thing to see and has echoes of that even in Casablanca. The last thing I'm going to say to it full circle, it's a good job they did release it when they did, because by 1943, midway through, Morocco absolutely, which, by the way, Morocco at the beginning of World War II was actually a French imperial possession. This is why you've got the Germans and French kicking around in Casablanca, because at that time it was part of Vichy France, which, in other words, was a puppet state for the Third Reich. And therefore that's why they're allowed to operate the way they do in Morocco, but they're going to turn a blind eye. Well, an American at that time was also neutral as well, but they're kind of going to turn a blind eye to various people because it was on the very fringes of influence by the Nazi regime. And so all of this is historically accurate, but by the midpoint in 43, the Allies had taken it over again, which is why there was a conference about it. So it had been cleared of Axis powers as the Allies swept through it, but there was a local Moroccan Islamic leadership there. And obviously nowadays, Morocco is a completely independent state. That's it from me. And as always, another episode. Future Gem here. After doing the recording, which I was very pleased with, I might add, I realised I forgot to do my little plug, which is a number of the facts that I got for this particular episode is from my brand new book, which at the time of release is coming out in basically a week's time, but you can absolutely pre-order it. It's called Hollywood and History. It's where I show various different Hollywood movies depicting history and what did they get right and what did they get wrong and why. It's a really fun read. I'm really looking forward to it coming out and talking to people more about it. That sounds like your cup of tea. Basically, this podcast inspired that book. So if you like this podcast, definitely it should be the sort of book that you're interested in. Hollywood and History by Jem Daduchu. If you go on to any kind of book website, you'll be able to pre-order it now. Thank you very much. That's it from me, and as always, another episode coming soon.